deep into that darkness peering, said Edgar Allan Poe. Long I stood there, wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. I'd like to believe that my dreams have taken me places that I never thought I'd be, and I love to share them with you. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is a little taste of things to come. So, the essence of a life of service is to be ready when the master calls. A true servant wakes every morning with two tasks in mind. The first is everlasting. It's the desire to bring the powers that I've been granted from potential to actual. That sense we have that there's simply more within us and that putting it into service is why we've been brought into the world. The other task is to open my ears for the call that may come at any time. And whether I work for the government, I am a true slave or servant, or I'm simply speaking about the divine service, there's no real difference. And in fact, the divine servants is the archetype of this ideal. Everything I have was clearly given to me by God. And when the call comes for me to serve, I want to be ready with all I've got. So this, this being what I'm saying right now, is actually my first effort at answering what I feel to be a very specific call. In a sense, it's a pre-effort because the real work, the true offerings, are yet to come. If you follow the Jewish story, then you know that I've been tracing more than 2,500 years of Jewish history. It's been a lot of work, and I have to say, it's brought a lot out within me that I never even knew was there. And together with all those powers have come a conclusion that our past actually demands something very specific of our present. If we're ever going to get to that future which we desire, let it be soon, let it be now. And what that is, isn't a simple action, nor even a frame for understanding. It's an essential posture. We, as individuals, communities, nations, and dare I say, as a species on our planet, need to take a more heroic posture toward everything and everyone that we encounter. That's the goal of the coming Jewish Heroism Project, to make available the wisdom and tools of our ancient tradition in order that everyone who's willing to listen can become more of a hero. Now, as I said, the current podcast is just a warm-up. Call it a bit of a seasonal thought and a teaser for the full project launch to come. Happening Hanukkah, by the way, just under two months time. Stay tuned. You can check out the website, jewishheroism.com. It should be going live soon, depending on when you listen to this. Send me an email, robmikefoyer at gmail.com. Happy to share with you some of the exciting details. Plus, I can use your support. I'll share the link. You can give a little bit of your gold to make it happen. But for now, just know that the hero's journey, be it personal or professional, always begins with a call. And there's no better story for exploring this within our tradition than that of the prophet Yonah. So the book of Jonah, or Yonah, I'm probably going to switch between the two, is traditionally read at Mincha, the afternoon prayers on Yom Kippur, the highest holy day of the year. And at first glance, it might seem to make sense how the story fits today. After all, it's about a prophet carrying the message of imminent divine punishment to the city of Nineveh and how the people then humble themselves before God. But 
Once we get past that sort of obvious part, the whole host of questions arises. First of all, the miraculous takes an unusually front-loaded position in Jonah's story. I mean, divinely guided storms, man-swallowing fish, giant shade-giving gourds. So we're going to need to think about that. And then there's Jonah himself. I mean, what's a prophet doing fleeing from the voice of God in the first place? As if not a town is going to help him escape the call from the creator of the universe, as if there is anywhere where God is not. And why does he seem so distraught about sitting in the heat of the sun when his shade plant wilts after he's saved the lives of countless thousands of people through his intervention? Not to mention that Jonah has a rather rich backstory provided for us by the sages. Wait to hear about that one. Finally, for me, there's actually nothing stranger and more instructive than the end of the book. It's funny. After the drama of Jonah's attempt to flee, his being tossed in the sea and swallowed by a fish, his eventual return and triumphant preaching to Nineveh, their instant repentance, we're presented with a conversation between the prophet and the creator that ends with God saying, and shouldn't I care about Nineveh, that great city? There's more than 120,000 people there who don't know their right from their left, and many animals as well. That last line, many animals as well strange so strange in fact there is a critical camp out there that claims we're missing the actual end to the book but i don't buy it because i've said before i'll say it again until i'm blue in the face you know a storyteller by where they begin and where they end and more than half the meaning of a tale lies in those two choices jonah according to tradition belongs to that line of prophets who actually preached more than they wrote. And you'll notice that this book really only seems to be nominally about what he has to say. It's more of an autobiography. It's about his own experience. So what's the message that Jonah's life has for you and I? So first things first, who was Jonah ben Amitai? Jonah, the son of Amitai. Now, I could call him just a guy looking to live a normal existence, who was pushed off the deep end of life at a very early age. Why? Because the sages say that Jonah was actually the young boy resurrected by the prophet Eliyahu, Elijah. He's son of the woman who sustained Elijah during the drought and famine, which he himself had decreed on the land. So, like I said, from a very young age, he simply wasn't like the other kids, having died and returned to life. He knew that there was something unspeakable which lay beyond the bounds of normal existence not to mention the fact that the scariest personality in the entire hebrew bible was now his benefactor so jonah's career as a prophet also doesn't get enough attention i think people are distracted by the book that was written in his name and not by what he actually does in the rest of the hebrew bible he appears as the bearer of divine promises in the second book of kings and there's a tradition that teaches that he was a student of elisha himself the disciple of Elijah, and was wrapped up in the preaching and politics of the northern kingdom, as were Elisha and Elijah themselves. But at a certain point, the sages say Jonah fled to Jerusalem. We don't know why, but I'll go out on a limb and venture to say he'd probably had enough of the craziest happening up north. I mean, after all, prophets were deposing kings, priests of Baals were being slaughtered on their own altars, fire was regularly raining down from the sky. I think Jonah had had enough of the divine heights and just wanted a normal religious existence. <laughs> Ooh, how shocked he must have been when the divine spirit descended on him, 
during Shminiat Seret, that eighth day of gathering, at the end of the Sukkot festival, which is really the culmination of the entire high holy day season that we are finding ourselves working through even now. Now, the sages say that, or at least one opinion says, let's get that straight, that he actually come to preach against Jerusalem itself to warn of God's wrath and the city's imminent destruction. And that as a proven prophet from the north, meaning he had given prophecy which had come true and therefore he was affirmed he had his prophet stamp of approval so to speak as a proven prophet from the north the people took him quite seriously and repented sound familiar if you know the book of jonah it may but for our purposes that made his prophecy of the destruction of the city now appear false and the people wanted to kill him as a false prophet oh poor jonah if you're feeling confused at this point just imagine the turmoil in his soul. And just at that moment of turmoil, when he thought he knew who he was, what he was meant to do, and how the world was supposed to work, the call comes. Here's Jonah, the product of a miraculous existence, seeking a normal life, a bit like each of us. I can't speak for you. I've never been resurrected. But life is its own miracle. And when you come to consciousness and realize what lay before and what therefore might lie ahead, it can be quite disconcerting. You might want to just live a normal life. Like Jonah, product of that miraculous existence, seeking a normal life. A proven prophet who knows why he was put in the world and what he's meant to do, who now feels that his mission has become false. A human being faced with a divine that is actually beyond comprehension. Is it any surprise he breaks and runs? Classically speaking, when we speak of the hero's call, we're talking about a summons, a call to transfer the center of our existence from the known bounds of life and society into the great unknown which lies beyond. Now, whether that unknown is the realm of the divine, or that of fate, chaos, or the mysteries, the result is really the same. There's some insight, a moral or practical realization, maybe it's an experience that upsets the complacent balance I've reached in my own life. That sense I have that I'm okay with the world and the world's okay with me. Now, sometimes that call will come as the voice of our higher self, demanding we don't play it safe and small, but that we be all that we can be. Sometimes it's the voice of society laying out a vision of suffering and wrong which can be transformed by right action taken by you. And sometimes it's the voice of God who alone knows that we in creation are capable of far more when we come together and who's placed us in the position to be the driver for humanity's spiritual evolution. That's a big task. And when the call comes, whether you hear it from within whether it is there on the posters calling for you to be all that you can be within your society, or whether God in the divine voice reaches out. When that call comes, everybody has a choice to make. You can accept it. You can deny it, or you can refuse it. Now, deny or delay might buy time for one of us, all of us, to sink back into that comfortable life we know. By the way, don't be disparaging about comfort. It could be a good moral constructive life, which I'm contributing to the world around me and being a decent person. But what it is not is heroic. And avoiding that call to be 
a hero. To throw my whole being into a larger scale of struggle generally means it's going to come back to me with even louder and more powerful demands. That's delay. Then there's acceptance. I can hear that call. And like Shmuel, like Samuel the prophet, I can respond, Daber Speak, Lord, your servant hears. Now, there's much time ahead in the Jewish heroism project for us to really define what it means to be a hero. And in truth, it's still an open exploration in my eyes and will probably remain so right down through the end of 26 master classes, which I'm planning to offer to you on what Jewish heroism is actually made of. But nonetheless, I'll spill the beans right now on my working definition for hero, or heroism, I should say. Heroism is Monsieur Nefesh Leman Tov. It's a giving over of one's limited sense of self for the sake of a larger tov, a larger embodiment of the divine will about how the world ought to be. Or if God isn't your cup of tea, a larger vision of the goodness which is not yet in the world. For now, that means answering the call is giving oneself over to the willingness to give one's self over. Meaning, you have to be willing to be bigger than you are if you're going to answer the hero's call. And that means the death of who you were, at least on some level. So you can delay, you can accept, or like Jonah, you can refuse. I mean, it's a crazy thing, isn't it? Jonah is a prophet. He knows not only of God's existence, but God's will as well. Furthermore, he knows God's power in his flesh, having been brought back from death by Elijah himself. There is no normative assumption in Jonah's life. The normative assumption is that powerful psychological trick we all play on ourselves that produces our belief in the continuity of everything we know. My job I have today will be there tomorrow. My loved ones, who I've always known, will always be around. The earth on which I walk is a solid ground to build on. And even when we suffer death, disruption, earthquake, flood, fire, the normative assumption may be knocked out for a little while, but it always returns and helps us rebuild. It's the essence of how we're able to function in what really amounts to a very chaotic existence. Except Jonah doesn't have it. Since he awoke from the sleep of the dead, God's voice has been like the wind blowing across the waters of the deep sea of his soul, pushing him wherever it will. And apparently, this time, he'd had enough. No more heroism. No more giving over of that bit of normalcy he'd managed to cobble together for the sake of something larger. This time, he was getting out of town. Now, for full disclosure's sake, I have to say I live in a very normal religious world. Some might even call it downright square. Now, you could be amongst those for whom religious and normal don't coexist, but trust me when I tell you that it's actually kind of pretty pedestrian around here. My neighbors save their pushing of the boundaries of consciousness largely for their politics and maybe the occasional outburst of passionate prayer. And yet, and yet, at every year, Hundreds of little children will come home from preschool with pictures they've drawn of Jonah in the belly of the whale, and nobody bats an eye. I don't know about you, but I've Googled, can whales swallow people? And, you know, the biology and physics just don't match up. But our simple belief that indeed this story was true isn't biblical fundamentalism. Well, it says so in scripture, and so it must be so. It's actually more fundamental than that. 
I'm willing to bet that if I ask flat out, many of the people in my community are willing to be a bit, let's say, skeptical about the details of Jonah's story. But if we continued the conversation, most would actually come to the exact same conclusion. Well, Kodesh Baruch Kol Yachol, God can do anything. If we're already having a conversation about God, why are we bothering about questions of possible details? Now, I want you to know that life without this type of sacred imagination, without the ability to accept that which lies beyond what we understand, isn't just impoverished. It's actually living a falsehood. You know, we used to call the need to shrink the universe to the confines of the human mind idolatry. But today, we think that idolatry has gone, right? That rationality has banished those shadows of superstition which once lay over everything outside our understanding. But only an arrogant fool would think that means nothing lies beyond the bounds of the rational mind. If you think we're capable of understanding everything, that's not just an impoverished imagination. It's a falsehood. Because there's a darkness that underlies the human psyche. And indeed, the entirety of existence, and it's no less real than the light of reason in which we live. Now, I say darkness not because it's evil and scary, but simply because it's unknown and often by definition unknowable. It can't be known in the way the conscious mind works. It has to be experienced. In other words, the wisdom available from the world which lies beyond the boundaries of our knowledge, can only be accessed when we let it swallow us up. And so Jonah flees the divine call to go and preach against Nineveh. Why he does so isn't clear in the book, and thus a source of hot debate amongst the sages. Some say he was afraid of being called a false prophet should Nineveh repent, just like they say had happened to him in Jerusalem. Others say, no, he knew Nineveh would repent, Easily, in fact, and he didn't want to make the Jews look bad. We tend to be a bit more begrudging and stubborn about changing our ways. Still, another opinion says that Jonah thought the whole thing was a waste of time and energy. After all, he knew God was merciful, would never actually destroy the city. That's, in fact, what he says at the end of the book. I'll throw my hat in the ring and add a slightly different reason, or a non-reason, if you will. Jonah fled because he was done being a hero. Since his resurrection, he'd lived without that normative assumption that sustains the human condition, and he was done living beyond the bounds of humanity. He wanted to go somewhere where God was not, and therefore where he was never going to be asked to be more than he already was, even if that meant a voyage to self-destruction. And so he boards the ship for Tarshish, the biblical version of the edge of nowhere, and promptly falls deep asleep. Sound like a stress-anxiety defense response to anyone? I'm sure you've never done it, but I've definitely crashed out when everything becomes just too much to handle. He's so deeply asleep, in fact, that when the raging storm comes and the sailors of the boat act like any normal person does in a crisis, chuck everything you don't need overboard to lighten the load in hopes of surviving and cry out to whatever power you believe might save you, Jonah is so deeply asleep he has to be awoken. It's actually the second call to heroism in the book. And it comes in the voice of the ship captain, but it's no less divine. When he says, Malacha nirdam, kum krayo echa. What on earth are you doing sleeping? 
get up and cry out to your God. And this should be a warning to us all, in life in general and on Yom Kippur in particular. If you're still asleep there at Mincha, unwilling, unable, trapped in the belief that you cannot change or that you're just satisfied with who you are, it's time to wake up, chuck everything you don't need, and cry out. Then comes the fateful moment when Jonah is forced to admit that he himself is the cause of his own troubles. Now, the sailors bring him up, and they cast lots to see who the storm was, and Jonah says, yeah, yeah, it's me, and they dip him in the water, and the storm calms. You should read the book. It's definitely a good one. But if you do, don't miss the fact that in the end, it's Jonah's healthy moral sense, his desire that the sailors not die for his decision to flee reality, which brings on the beginning of the change. Because someone truly fleeing God might have let everyone sacrifice themselves for his own hopes to be free. After all, in the end, this was a voyage to self-destruction. What does he care if he takes other people with him? But the reality is he does. And so with heavy hearts, the sailors throw the prophet into the sea, where fortunately his ride is waiting in the form of a giant fish. You know, the Zohar says that the word dog, fish, can actually be read as daga, meaning anxiety. Yonah's next step on his journey is to go deeper into the very fears and anxieties which had forced him to flee to begin with. This is a critical takeaway. Sometimes the heroic call comes in the form of our fear itself, right? When you're afraid, sometimes it makes sense. Stay away from the edge of buildings, don't play with knives, and don't swim in shark-infested waters. But aside from that, when we're afraid, it's often important to lean into the fear, to face the anxiety directly in order to become the person we're being called to be. And there he is, Jonah, in the belly of the fish for three days. You may know that during the 10 days of repentance that lead up to Yom Kippur, we add a chapter of Psalms to the morning prayer service. That's chapter 130 if you want to look it up. It begins, From the depths I call out to you. And while the parallel to Jonah in the fish is obvious, it's worth just thinking about the fact that you've got to dig deep if you actually want to give voice to that which you really could be. The response to the hero's call needs to be digging deep within yourself and telling whoever is calling you to be more than you can be, what that more has to say. And so there's Jonah in the belly of the fish, in the depths of the sea, and he cries out to the very God he's been fleeing. And what does Jonah say? In my trouble I called you, God, who answered me from the belly of Sheol I cried out, and you heard my voice. Okay, actually the way the story went was that you ran away, and now that you're in the depths you're calling, but that's fair. Now, he goes on, he says, I thought I was driven away out of your sight would I ever gaze again upon your holy temple. Wait a minute. I mean, Jonah wasn't driven away. He ran away. And now he's facing the consequences. As it says, the waters closed in over me, the deep engulfed me, weeds twined around my head. Who's got the agency in this story? Well, the answer comes with a turnaround toward the end of his prayer. He says, when my life was ebbing away, when you get to that point, when the old you is actually being destroyed no matter what. And that's important to understand. The hero's call has an edge to it. Because the reality is when we're called to be more than we are, it often means that who we were is already on its way to ending. 
So when Jonah says, when my life was ebbing away, I called God to mind, he realizes where that call comes from. And my prayer came before you in your holy temple. They who cling, he says, to empty folly forsake their own welfare. The empty folly of thinking he could flee God, of thinking that ignoring or refusing the hero's call would actually solve the problem, would put to rest the imminent reality he was being called to birth, was simply empty folly. And it was forsaking his own welfare. This is Jonah realizing that he had driven himself out of God's sight and thus cast himself into the darkness outside of everything that he had known. But in allowing himself to be swallowed by that darkness, to be engulfed in an experience that lay outside the bounds of his rational understanding, what came, but I with loud thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will perform. Deliverance is God. Notice the partnership and agency. What I vowed I will perform. I'm being called to act and I will do it, but deliverance, that belongs to God. And so Jonah spit back out into life, having tasted the truth of who he's being called to be. Back on track, it appears, with his prophetic heroic mission on his mind. Now, on one hand, the book of Jonah ends much as you might expect it. The prophet comes and preaches, the city repents, God is merciful, end of story, right? If sin, repentance, and mercy were what the story was actually about, right, then it should have ended with Nineveh rejoicing in his return to righteousness. But it doesn't. Instead, we get the fourth and final chapter, which gives us a very odd exchange between the prophet and God. In fact, it makes Jonah appear downright petty or perhaps illuminates for us the final challenge that comes together with the heroic call. It says that Jonah prayed to God saying, isn't this just what I said when I was still in my own country? This is why I fled before to Tarshish, for I know you are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in kindness, renouncing punishment. This is Jonah saying, I told you so to God. Why did you put me through all of this? Now, part of this, of course, is an important focus on the process as opposed to the product. I mean, the obvious answer that I think God wants to draw for Jonah and for those of us reading the book is don't be so sure that the end result is why I put you through the process. Attaining what you attain is one thing, but becoming who you need to be by attaining it is entirely another. So in the story, Jonah flees the city to sit on a hilltop and watch what unfolds in his bitterness as he argues with God. And, you know, it's the hot Middle Eastern sun. And so God causes a vine to grow miraculously quickly and large, and it shades the prophet from the fierce rays. And it says that Jonah rejoiced with a great joy over this kikayon. It's the little things in life, right? But then God sends a worm and the east wind to ruin his shade. And now it's the little things in life, right? Jonah goes to the other extreme. And he says, better I should die than live. That's a very dramatic response to being schwitzy and overheated. And God uses Jonah's misery over the fate of his shade tree as a comparison to the divine sorrow over the fate which Nineveh had narrowly avoided. You cared about that plant, says God, which you didn't work for, you didn't grow. It appeared overnight and perished overnight. 
And should I not care about Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not yet know their right hand from their left, and many animals as well? There's that final line. This is more than just a moral slap in the face. Hey, get your priorities straight. It's a warning to the prophet and to us all. Should we answer that hero's call? Should we be able to give ourselves over to a larger part of existence? We may accomplish grand and unimaginable things to be swallowed by an existence which can't be known but only lived. Just as on Yom Kippur, you can give yourself over to the call of the day. Leave behind the person you no longer want to be in order to taste who you truly are. But just remember, the world doesn't change with you. At the end of Yom Kippur, you're going to have to go back and break fast and re-enter that daily life of the normative assumption. And that's the deepest challenge of all. Once you've tasted the profound and the powerful, once you've felt your own angelic self, the details of life are boring at best, and at worst, they can be incomprehensibly stupid while still acting as real barriers to that life of heroic proportion. A hero still gets sunstroke, and my highest consciousness of self can be tempted by sin and failure in the most mundane of ways. The response to the heroic call isn't just descending into the depths of the darkness or rising into the angelic heights. It's about taking the wisdom that we find there, what we're able to experience but not articulate outside the bounds of what we know, and bring them back into life itself in a way which matters. And most of that life appears deceptively simple and maddeningly unending because that is life. It's a world filled with people who don't yet know their right hand from the left and many animals as well. This book ends with a call to us all. That call to step out of the bounds of what we know into the heroic space to give ourselves over for the sake of bringing something larger into being and then to bring the riches we find there right back into the real world. So I want to bless you and I hope you bless me back. That when you hear the call, that you can open your heart and your soul and step out of the bounds of what you know into that which simply needs to be lived and that the wealth, richness, and wisdom you find there should be not just sustaining in the moment, but should offer you guidance to bring back into your daily life and mine in order to offer the treasures of a truly heroic existence that can be lived day by day. Just want to thank you all for being loyal listeners. I want to invite you to join me in the Jewish Heroism Project. You can go to the website, jewishheroism.com, and you'll see there a link to make a donation. Make sure you pull down the pull-down menu and, and dedicate your donation to the Jewish Heroism Project. Or you can find me on Facebook, Rob Mike Foyer on Facebook. You can write me an email, robmikefoyer at gmail.com. Happy to share with you ways in which you can support the project and even some details about what's to come. So I hope to see you next time around the wheel.